Uh, one of the things we, we've seen be super helpful in these conferences is to take a few minutes and try to flesh out some of the more meaty applications. And that's best done in a Q&A. Uh, and so what we're going to do is right now for the next 30 minutes, we're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some softballs yeah. to these guys and right. uh, let, them, let them kick it around. Because they may actually have differing ideas of how to do that. And that'd be good for us. And then tomorrow during Sunday school, we're going to do the same thing with Mark and Robert as it pertains to TCPC directly. Some of the things that we're, we're as a church going to d- double click down onto. So you can come back for that Q&A as well. But we wanted this to be a conversation because this stuff really has to get worked out in conversation, uh, not just in monologues and that kind of thing. So uh, I'm going to dive right in. We only got 30 minutes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give the, the largest softball the first question, okay? Awesome. We wanna, so the questions that were sent in, great ones, without question, the number one thematic conversation was, how do we love our, uh, our friends, our neighbors that are sexually diverse from us? I, I know that's a strange phrase, but L, L, LG, L, uh, LGBTQ community, same-sex community, homosexual community, all of us are asking the question, how, how, do, I, how do I navigate that? yet hold a, uh, a biblically faithful view of sexuality, all that. Now, let me just say up front, because this is such a big topic, we deliberately chose not to address this in our seminars. We are actually going to host a Good of the Bluegrass conference on sexuality in two years, Lord willing, okay? Because this is a massive topic. We're going to try to do it next year, but we've got a speaker we're trying to bring in for this, and we're not sure we can get her uh, next year, but we're going to try to get her the, the next year. So... Be, be, be forewarned, we're going to address the whole sexuality topic as a conference in the years to come. But in a neighbor love conference, I think we need to ask the question. So that's a broad question. Let's, let's address it for a few minutes. Pastor? <laughs> well, um, I actually, uh, because I knew we weren't going to address that officially at the conference I actually uh, brought up a little bit my sermon that was prepping for the conference so I did bring it up a little bit last Sunday um, you know I, in a lot of ways I think that question obviously well let's just let me just say I, it does not surprise me that that's the biggest question y'all got because I think that is the question the church is having to ask in our age yeah a couple thoughts um I think the I think I, I think the gay community is is at least asking us to um, at least get to know and listen at the very least um, to not jump into the dialogue, not jump into the sexual ethic debate um, with all the answers um, with with you know trite um, uncharitable sayings and tropes, but to, to actually talk and listen. Um, when I started writing, uh, when I started writing op-eds for the Herald Leader a few years ago, um, that was the community that reached out to me the most. And, um, and that was the consistent theme was we, we, we understand that you all consistently say, yes, we think it's a sin, but all of us are sinners, you know, like, well, yeah, yes, but we're all sinners. But the consistent conversation I had was with them was, but we don't feel that. We feel you actually do think this sin is the sin. This sin 
is bigger. And, and they said, we just kind of want you to recognize that you have treated it that way. It, it has been elevated. You, you know, the same sexual ethic that you ask of the world, you do not expect of yourselves. Uh, that's another big one is consistent ethics across the board. Do we, do we handle... Uh, do we handle the same way we handle divorce? Do we handle it the same way we handle pornography in our midst? Do we handle it the same way we handle infidelity and unfaithfulness and uh, the hookup culture that's all over the church? Like, are we handling, do we have a consistent sexual ethic across the board? I think is, is really poor. So I think, I think consistency and listening, in my view, has been what's, what's been most important. Yeah, I, I think that something that we can all agree to is that we're all sexually broken at some level. And to be in touch with that, um, to be more, I, I, okay, so I said in one of, the, one of the sermons that we need to be better at talking about what's right with Jesus than we are at talking about what's wrong with the world. And I think that applies here too. I think that no one really questions where we, I mean, people in the LGBTQ, and I think there's an I now, community, um, They know where we stand. They know what we believe. They know that, in general, they know we don't approve of it. So I I don't know what we gain by adding to our our conviction uh, an ethos that is, you know, oftentimes condescending, mean-spirited. Like, I need to to let you feel my disapproval. I don't think we gain anything from that. But I think when our orthodoxy is adorned with beauty— and when our, our, what we believe actually causes us to, to draw near to as compassionate, open-hearted, uh, listening friends to our neighbors, I think it actually, it makes them begin to question, maybe there is something to what they believe. Because we're, I mean, think about all the things we share, right? We're, we're, we share sexual brokenness. Even if they don't think that their homosexual desires are a feature of brokenness. We can, we can grant them that. We don't need them to agree to that at the moment for us to share that we think we're sexually broken. We, we, don't, we don't need them to agree with that in order for, for us to identify the fact that we too struggle with identity issues and knowing who we are. We wrap our identity around things that are not union with Christ. And as a result, we're confused, we're lonely, we're sad, we're disoriented. We know what it's like in so many ways. To, to, to connect with the things that they face and they struggle, what we're suggesting is that you don't have to have it all figured out in order to start the journey of discovering how it is that following Jesus actually begins to reach back into all the things about you to change you. Every Christian must get to the point where they say, there is nothing off the table in terms of what Jesus can speak to in my life in terms of what Jesus can change about my life. And all we're doing is inviting you to that same journey and just let everything be on the table. There are going to be some hard things. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think the heart test is, that, and again, this goes back to what I think they're longing, or maybe they don't articulate it, but would be the bridge. I think the heart test is, do you truly believe that you are sexually broken or that your sexual brokenness is as heinous unto the Lord 
as any form of sexual brokenness kind of thing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what, was, what did you say? We need to focus more on what Jesus is good at. Not no, no. What's good about Jesus and what's bad about the world. Okay. And, but how do you focus on what's good about Jesus is by focusing on what's bad about me. And letting people actually understand that Jesus can handle my... Jesus can disagree with my sexuality. For Jesus sure. can disagree sure. and redeem my broken and and I, th- I think it's going to take us letting people in on yeah what, like you know uh people joke that the two things that really reveal where you are with lord are money and sex and those are the two things that are off the table for preachers mm. and um and so I, I think it's going to take us like opening the conversation and actually being honest with yeah with jesus disagreeing with my own desires. Yes. And I'm having to submit to him as Lord of my sexual desires and where they've been broken, where he's redeemed them and mm-hmm. tell our stories. Agreed. And when I say talk more conversant and talking about what's right with Jesus than we are wrong with what's, what's wrong with us, the goodness of Jesus exceeds the reaction to our sin and brokenness. Like his, his goodness is far beyond that. It's, there's more to talk about there. And so I think that when we are in touch with that, I think that it does give us, you know, perspective on how to, to talk about these things with with our neighbors. And I think I would make the argument for all you Presbyterians in the room. I think that our confessional standards would say that our sexual brokenness is actually worse than our gay neighbors. And here's why our status of being in union with Christ and yet persisting in sexual sin is actually more grievous. And so it's by status. It's by knowledge. You know more about the Bible and thus your accountability for living up into what you know makes you more accountable than our neighbors who don't know much about the Bible. So I would actually say you can make a biblical case that the sexual sin of Christians is more grievous before God than the sexual sins of our neighbors. That, that's how I would make the case confessionally. So let me take it one, one step further. <clears throat> um, Rosaria Butterfield is well known for, for saying this, and she's got her actual new book, is this, which I would commend to many of you wrestling with this issue. But she says, give our, our friends in the homosexual community the gospel and the house key. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, uh, of hospitality there. Some of the questions that came out uh, today over the, that were asked was things like, is it okay for me to go to the wedding of a same-sex couple? Like, is that something that I, as a Christian, am, am allowed to do? Uh, so speak to, speak to the real tangible ways of expressing that sort of, that, that make sense? Pastor. Okay, okay, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. Presuming this is a close friend of yours, they already know what you think about it. But would you show up at their, any party that they were throwing that they invited you to? It's a thing for them. It's important to them. Uh, Maybe you would if you're a real friend to them. You know, them showing up at your stuff. You have non-Christian friends who you show up at weddings who don't, agree with anything that the pastor's saying about the wedding. They don't endorse any of it, but they show up as an expression of friendship and celebrating with those who are celebrating, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. I think there's a way that you could attend and you don't need to be sitting in there like this. (laughs) I disapprove of all this, just so you know, I'm going to show you. I think there's a way, I mean, Jesus shows up in places. I think that we have to keep coming back to the, the reputation of Jesus in this world. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And you know why they called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard? It wasn't because he was sitting back with the Welches. It's because 
he was actually showing up in the places that scandalized the religious people. And I think we always have to mind that tension, that the things that scandalize people who inhabit primarily religious spaces, we would be scandalized. I ask myself often the question, where would Jesus be showing up today if he had, if he had came in the flesh today? Where would he be showing up in, in places that it would scandalize those who had been in the faith for a long time? I wonder. Right? Like, what is the risk? I mean, what are you afraid of if you show up at one of those, uh, one of those unions? Are you afraid that people are going to mistake that you endorse it? Are you afraid that, I mean, what are you afraid of? Seriously. Because there's a possibility that that friend, I mean, Rosaria's story is incredible. She was as invested in that way of life as one could be. And it was through the love and hospitality of a, a reformed pastor of all people that she actually comes to faith. It was the persistent kindness. You know what I'm saying? So, like, Yeah, totally. I think when you, let me anticipate answers. Go ahead. When you say, <laughs> what are you afraid of? What do you, what, like, what's, what's the issue? I, I know there's fear. I think what I get from well-intended Christians that I, I deeply respect is the fear of celebrating something that, 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 that breaks God's heart. And so what I tell people is this, 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 this is, this is my, bring it. This is my canned answer. Do it. Um, I, I don't think in this particular issue, this is an issue where we can bind anyone's conscience either way. Uh, you know, people, well-intended Christians for different reasons. I had a seminary professor that said, absolutely, Hans Beyer, absolutely go support, show up, love. I had another seminary professor who said, no, I would not go. I, I don't think this is an area where we can bind a conscience and say, this, I think you, this is something you need to work out in your own community and, and in your personal convictions. However, and this is, this is the sticking point where I come back to, I think, what the gay community is asking from us and would reveal that it's not a leprosy sin. However, wherever you land on that, there has to, once again, be a consistent ethic across the board. So if you say, I'm not going, to, I'm not going because I won't celebrate that, then you have said, by showing up, I celebrate that. Okay, there are a lot of weddings that you go to whether it be an unbiblical divorce that is now being remarried, whether it be a, a minister who doesn't believe a thing that you believe and is going to officiate that wedding in a way that is so far outside the bounds of Scripture. I mean, when you, start, when you, when you take that ethic of I'm not showing up at something because I think by showing up it's celebrating it, then, then you've got you to hold that across the board and it goes beyond marriages oh yeah oh yeah yeah showing up at you know certain place you know so i think i think there has to be a way for you to say i we are allowed to disagree in love like we are allowed to i'm allowed i'm allowed to support you without celebrating you Uh your what your choice is or whatever i don't know but anyway so the original question was is it permissible and just to pull it all together i would say it, you got to go case by case basis, and I would say you got. It depends upon the particular relationship, the particular friendship, um, and your your own conscience. Don't offend your conscience. Again, we can't right. bind your conscience, but I I would not feel like I needed to like discipline someone. I've had people in my congregation ask me this exact question, and so we talked about the nature of the relationship. And yes, they know I'm a Christian. They know that I believe in what Christians throughout history and all around the globe believe about marriage. And they asked me specifically, they said, I know you don't agree with this, but because we're friends, 
would you come and, and be a part of this day that's going to be special to me because our relationship to me is special and I don't want that to get cut off. And they said, I want to set up for the next conversations. I want to be someone that they feel they can come and talk to when that relationship inevitably gets difficult, like all human relationships do. <laughs> so that I can be the one who's positioned there in love to say, you know, that all of our human relationships were never the answer. And our identities were never meant to be built around these things. You know, Jesus, he's, he's, he, he stands waiting for people just like us. I want to keep that line open because I have no idea what kind of providence the Lord is going to bring into this dear friend's life. And I want to be positioned to be the one there to speak to it in light of biblical truth and good news. Yeah, we can stay the whole time on this, so let's move on. But I, I would say, just summing it up, if you want to know how do you do this well, Rosaria Butterfield, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Just go get it, read it. That's the best way it's done. Um, and our, our second or newest and her, one is, and her newest the, one is on key. hospitality right. and, and fleshes it out that way. But her story is in that book, and it's, that's how you do it. And, and if that was insufficient, we, 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 we are very much as a church wanting to move out into these waters in the years to come. So, all right, uh, next question. It's sort of in the lines of that. Uh, I think one of the questions is just how have, how have you guys failed to love your neighbor? Give us some failure stories. I'm going to tell you how he failed. His pocket is naked. <laughs> he failed to love he will me not, well. He I will do... not leave me alone <laughs> with my naked you know, pocket. You know, you know what his pocket's favorite hymn is? Heal us. Oh, Robert, here we are. So they got, the, they got into this discussion where they opened up their coats and were talking about their suits. And I was like, yeah, I got Columbia and Nike and uh, North Face. That's, that's my style. Sorry. All right. I'm a distractor. All right. So this so, one, let me answer this so one how, first. How have you failed? <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll be honest. Maybe one of the reasons why they're having the conference uh, is uh, let, let's, uh, a better question to me would be maybe like, where have you succeeded at all? Um, I, 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 you know, I said this to the session this morning, to the deacons this morning. I said to the pastors yesterday, and I need to say it to the church, you know, listen, the culture, at the end of the day, cultures of churches are formed by leadership and what's being said, what's being done, what's being repeated, what's being celebrated. And if this is a weakness at our church, it's a direct reflection of the weakness of this in my life and in Abby's life. Um, Abby and I are gonna, will, will be the first to tell you that I, I think this probably is the issue of repentance in our home and in our life. I mean that with all my heart. I'm not being falsely humble. Marshall's incredible at this. He started a church doing this. Uh, will evangelizes everywhere he goes. Uh, Mark, you know, everybody thinks, everybody in Heartland thinks Mark's the senior pastor because they don't even know that I'm a pastor. Uh, and um, I, we're, I'm not good at this. I'm really not good at this. My neighbors don't know me like they should. I don't know my neighbors like I should. We try, we fail, we're stumbling about. And so I think if there's a weakness here, that it's a direct reflection of the, this weakness in my life. And I am apologizing, and I have learned so much in two days, and I'm going to keep calling him, and he's going to teach me how to love my neighbor. Because when I know you have an answer to, to how you fail, but you, you really are a model of this for, for, for our denomination and for other pastors. and. And you, you are really leading us. You're leading me. So Thank you, bro. Uh, maybe, maybe, how have you failed? But I failed a <laughs> yeah, lot. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay, so 
the, the primary way that I find myself failing at this is when I feel pressed with church business and I get busy and I'm trying to do too much and I'm so concerned about the in-house stuff, the inside baseball that's going on, that there have been times where, there have been seasons where I have, when my schedule gets tight, the thing that gets bumped at times, first is sermon prep time, but then sometimes if I'm feeling really pressed on a sermon, I'll bump some neighbor love time, and uh, I get frustrated at myself for that. Um, And I think sometimes when I'm just exhausted, or it's my day off. Okay, I'm going to talk about my day off. My Sabbath is Friday. I don't want to do anything that remotely smells like pastoral ministry. Not even close. So sometimes I'll be firing up the smoker. I'm ready to go. The fire is going. I'm about to put the brisket on. And I hear Pastor Russ. I'm like, no! No! I don't have to love neighbors on my day off. It's my day off. It's my Sabbath, right? So I particularly feel it when many of you folks spend your Sabbath, your days off loving your neighbors or showing up to stuff. I don't want to do jack on my Sabbath. So those are ways that I fail in my heart. I don't want to leave my my bedroom on my Sabbath. (laughs) Sometimes I don't. (laughs) All right. So follow follow that. Several questions were, how how do you love... uh, I, I, this is my word at summarizing some difficult people, family members, habitual sinners, you know, people that just constantly are doing the same repetitive thing, argumentative people who you're trying to love and they're just already throwing arguments back. Just give some practical ways of how to hang in there with someone and uh, love a difficult person. Uh, so I'm going to pull up on my, my Bible app on my, um, on my phone a, a passage that always resonates with me when it comes to dealing with difficult people. Uh, it's Nehemiah 13.25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not... No, kidding, kidding. Y'all are like, really? He does this? <laughs> I try to repent my way all the way through it. And what I try to do is I try to dash the logic that I use for being angry or frustrated with this person, or just being just in a bad attitude about this person, I try to take that logic and I try to dash it on the rock of the gospel and say, if, I, if Jesus dealt with me like this, I would be a goner. Like, where would I be? Like, if he was just always bothered by how difficult I am, I try to basically, I try to always treat that person as a window and as a mirror. As a window, I see through them the glory of the God of heaven. I see his dignity. I see his beauty. I see the the glory for which they were created. I see the ways in which the glory of, of God's image has been defaced in this person. I see them as a window, but I also see them as a mirror because when I see whatever faults I see in them, I'm looking at faults in myself. When I see ways they're difficult, where I see ways that they're argumentative, I see myself. When I see ways that they're just so hard to love, I'm reminded that I am not more lovable. A window and a mirror. That's one of the ways that I try to get myself ready to love difficult people. Yeah, I, 
the low-hanging fruit and absolutely true answer is the gospel answer. That's the answer Jesus gave in the parable of uh, the servant who is forgiven much uh, by the king. And, I mean, and you know when you study that parable, the, the, the numbers are intentionally you know, ridiculous where uh, this guy owed, owed the king uh, basically what it would amount to more wealth than was in Israel at the time. And, and he said, I'll pay it back. I'll figure out a way. <laughs> and, and the king, and the king said, no, it's forgiven. And then, you know, and then the, he had a guy who owed him just, you know, a penny and he <laughs> threw him in jail for it. So I, I, the, the gospel is the biblical answer. And, and, um, and, and, uh, you know, what do you, how do you put it? Trace it back to Jesus. I like that language, trace it back. And what has he done for me? How can I not be merciful here? The practical, and, I, and this is biblical too, I think one of the reasons why Jesus asked us to pray for those who persecute us, to, 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 to pray for enemies, is because I think prayer does soften heart. Um, I, you can't hate somebody very long if you're praying for them consistently. So if you look at my daily prayer, people I want to pray for every day, there are the obvious ones, my children, my wife, um, certain pastoral concerns that are going on in our congregation, um, neighbors, I'll pray for them. I don't have them in my house, but I, I will pray. Uh, and then, and then I've got a list of people who don't like me and I'm not reconciled with, and I've tried and I tried and I tried. And it's my enemies who literally make the daily prayer list mm. along with my kids. Mm. And they're and then the reason why is because you, you just can't hate them if you're praying for them. So I think prayer is a real practical way. Now, uh, um, I really like, we've had this discussion quite a bit because I know people go to the end of those, these people on my list that I don't feel reconciled with. You need to know that I have done everything in my power to be reconciled with them. So there does come a point in all this neighbor love and all this love your enemies. Yes, there does come a point and that point is determined by community, not by you. So if I were to ask Will, Mark, our team, if I were to ask our session and say, hey, do you think I've done everything within my power to be reconciled to these people? They would say, yes, Robert, you, you really have. You, you've done everything you can do. You need to let that go. But in his language that he's been using uh, with us is, um, you know, the, the hotel commercial, we'll leave the light on for you. He says, just have that disposition toward those. We'll leave the light on. We're always here. Um, you ever want to be reconciled? I'm eager, phone call away, the light's on. And that's kind of what it looks to love those who just will not be loved. Yeah, one of the, one of the things Mark and I were talking about was this, I have this relationship with my father. Mm. That we're, not, we're not reconciled. We haven't seen each other in you know, 30 years. Mm. But every three years, I write him a letter. And it's mm. sort of I lead the light on for you type letter. And, mm. and it's hard. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's difficult to have that sort of family dynamic but we were talking about that as, as part of that so Mark's mad because you're stealing a seminar <laughs> <laughs> oh so we're going to go to your seminar now okay no so need to go all right la- last one and, and Russ I'll let you end on this one just um, you've been here three days mm-hmm. um, we have a you know a, a suburban context here and then we've got our downtown location that's you know geographically positioned to be a little more diverse and it's Welcoming, but the, the whole gentrification thing that they're struggling with downtown, and then just us with the, the, the tendency in a suburban church to be more fortified. Just in, in your perception, having been here for a few days, just give us the one or two. I know you could give us a lot. 
what, what are some things you would just say, hey, think about this as you guys go forward and being a, a church that is welcome, a friendly place yeah. for those that might be different than you? Uh, yeah, okay. So I would say there's, there's got to be a, 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 an integration here. You have, to, you have to do ministry with the people that you have here. You have to pay attention to the people who are here. But you also, I think, need to begin to frame things up for the people that you want to be here who are not here yet. If you wait to change things about the culture of the church or the worship, the Sunday morning liturgy of the church, all of the stuff that makes you who you are, if you wait until those folks out there in the neighborhood come in order to make your changes, you'll never see them. Because what you may or may not realize in your own minds every Sunday is when you hear the call to love your neighbors, to invite your neighbors, to welcome people, you're doing this calculus in your head and you're saying, if I were to use my relational capital and try to bring that friend or that neighbor or that coworker to this church, do I think they would connect? Do I think that they would be respected? Do I think that they would be valued or that they would, they would see themselves making a home in this place? And if the answer to that is no, you'll never invite them really. And so there needs to be this, this dialogue, this synergy between leadership and congregation where you all get on the same page about this idea. What we do as a church is always based upon the authority to God's word and our value of what is taught in the scriptures. We need God's mind about, about the way we do worship and about who we are as God's people. But there is a lot of latitude for us to add context to what we have in God's word. Okay, There's a lot of opportunity for us to flesh it out in ways that connect with the people of our place. Because that's, he has sent us to our neighborhood. That's our identity as God's church. We are a sent people Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. You are sent as the Father sent the Son. And that, don't, that as is no small thing. Think about how the Father sent the Son of God. The Son of God was not always a human being. From eternity past, he existed in glory without a physical body. But for the purposes of loving us, he became what he was not. That is Nicene Christology. If you want to get technical and fancy with it. (laughs) If you want to be like Jesus, if we are sent by Jesus as the Father sent Jesus, then we must become what we are not out of love for the other. And guess what? To this day, the Son of God sits at the right hand of the Father as a human being. His existence was permanently altered out of his love for the other. So if we're following this Jesus, if we're talking about this gospel, if we claim to have orthodox historic Christology in, in confessional, then this is, what, this is what we're talking about. Sorry. This is what we're talking about. We could go all day about the gospel. Jesus didn't commute from heaven to earth every day. He didn't say, well, fellas, it's five o'clock. See you tomorrow. Shh. And go back home. No. He relocated. But he relocated in such a way that his presence was a blessing to the original inhabitants, not uh, uh, a cursing to them. Mm. 
his presence made their lives better, not worse. Um, and so there are all kinds of ways that we can look to the gospel. Jesus brings those who are far off near at great cost to himself. Because here's the deal. What we do as the church, what we do in our local church ministry, it's always communicating to our neighbors. It's always speaking whether we realize it or not. We're always expressing value whether we realize it or not. The question is, do our neighbors see a value for them expressed in the way we do what we do as the church? Or do we seem like we're only interested in ourselves? Do we seem like we're only interested in preaching to the choir? I mean, and by all means, preach to the choir. Look at some of these choirs, right? Preach to the choir, but... Our neighbors ought to see a value for them reflected in what we do. Because when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we see a value for us reflected. And it doesn't, it doesn't diminish the orthodoxy of what Jesus has done one iota. But we still see value for us reflected in the ministry that he executed. Last thing I'll say is this. I use this illustration all the time, but I'll use it here. You can finish this conference up and you can say, yeah. We want, we want people to make a home. How many churches in America have on their church sign, all are welcome? <laughs> a lot, right? And what they mean, essentially, is we want you to move in with us. We want you to make a home with us. But I want you to think about this. College students, think about this. Let's just say someone says, hey, I want you to, I want you to come live with me. And you're like, okay, I'll come live with you. And so you pack up all of your stuff. You get your Justin Bieber poster. You get... You get all of your clothes and you pack up your food and your valuables and your shoes and your furniture. And on moving day, you show up at the door with all your stuff and you say, I'm ready to move in. And that friend says, I'm so glad you're here, but we won't be needing any of your stuff. Forget your Justin Bieber poster. I have a Katy Perry poster in here. It just works just fine. You know, we won't need your couch either. You know, I've got a couch. Forget your clothes. I got clothes in the closet. Your food, we won't need it. I got food in the fridge. In fact, don't bring anything of what what you have to bring. Just come on in and live. Would you be interested in living there? No. Because they're not inviting you to make a home with them. They're not really inviting. Their words say one thing, but their actions communicate something else. You know that if you're going to invite someone to come in and live with you, if you're going to invite them to make a home with you, then you're going to have to get rid of some stuff. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to lose some of your furniture. You're going to have to make space for them to bring something of who they are into the house so that you can make a home together. They're going to have to have a say in the way things are and what's hanging on the walls and, and what's going in the fridge and, and what's going on the grill and, and, and what kind of things are going on around the house. The house rules. It's only in that way that we really are able to make a home together. So the question is... In order for you to make good on your words of welcome, you have, to imp- you have to automatically ask the question, well, what do we have to clear out in order to make space for these neighbors? And that's the kind of question I think that you all need to take seriously together in order to figure that out. And you know what? Uh, sometimes you just aren't able to figure that out without actually having a dialogue with the people that you want to move in with you. One of the things that was really helpful to me, you know how we all have this general idea of what our neighbors think or where they're at, but until we actually talk to them, we don't really know, we assume. When I had conversations with my neighbors about, you know, would they ask, would they answer a few questions for me? Why aren't you in church? 
uh, have you ever been to church? What would a church need to do in order for you to feel like you could, you could be a part of it? And the answers that I got back from them were different answers than what I thought they would offer. Now, again, I ask those questions not because I'm building my liturgy around something outside of Scripture. No, I, I believe that the Scriptures tell us uh, the way that we're to think about worship, the way that we're to think about preaching, the way that we're to think about life as the church. But again, there's lots of room for us to contextualize in our place. If you're like, well, that sounds like a bad word. Okay, great. Well, then go over to China and do worship in English. You're going to have to change the language to connect with the people there. That's called contextualization. What I'm talking about is getting into the cultural vernacular of the place where you're located. Once you begin to do that and you begin to hear the, the answers that you get back from the neighborhood and you actually make adjustments, you, you, you stretch where you can stretch, you just might find those neighbors in the church. The thing is this, until the neighbors see... Until the neighbors are in the heart of the church, until the church is in the heart of the neighborhood, the neighbors won't be in the heart of the church. You won't find them here until they know that you're on their heart. And so one of the ways that we communicate that is by asking questions, understanding what it is they're looking for, what 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 have been barriers for them, what has been hard for them to digest. And then we see where we can love them well while remaining faithful to the regulative principle of worship. And on that Not note, many people get that joke, but I got it. We got that's it. for the elders and officers and folks. You know, this, yeah. All right, and on that note, one of the que- final questions we got was, will you sing for us one more time? Mmm. Mmm. What am I going to sing? You want to go to that piano? I want you to sing some Metallica or some Volbeat. No, or stop, like it. That. stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Give me, give me a request. Huh? I can't hear any of these. Huh? No. How about Rocky Top? <laughs> All right, I'm trying to think. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Woo-hoo! Look out. Oh, my.
Russ, thank you for being here. My joy. Uh, friends, Russ is preaching tomorrow. He's in the middle of a series that he just didn't want to give up, so he's writing a sermon. Uh, Robert, would you pray for Russ? Oh, thank you. Pray for our lunch. Stay put after the prayer. I'm going to give us some instructions. Let's end our conference on that. Thank you, brother. Lord, uh, thank you for my brother. Uh, thank you for your good providence, your good story. Thank you for his presence these three days that I believe with all my heart, if, if, all, if all you did with this conference was teach me how to love my neighbor, it's worth it. But Lord, I, I believe with all my heart you brought him here uh, to teach us as a church what it looks like to love this city, the city that you love. Lord, we send our brother back to his calling, to his neighborhood. I pray that he would be refreshed as he has preached to us. I pray he would be refreshed to embody once again. Lord, I, I know the rhythms of planting churches. I know the, the way to the pastor. I know that in the first few years it's exciting and um, comes naturally. And I know that he's in those years where neighbor love becomes a cross to bear. Mm. I pray that you would strengthen him. Mm-hmm. I pray that he would, he would practice what he is preaching, not just yes. to us, not just to uh, his church, not just to our denomination and mm. RUF and RTS, but Lord, in his home, in his heart, he would love his neighbor as himself. Mm. Empower him, give him uh, anointing and freshness and uh, a mind that's sharp and eager and ready to preach to his people tomorrow. Lord, he sacrificed and gave up uh, so much uh, to do this. So, Lord, I pray that you would multiply his time Mm. and uh, give him a word for his congregation tomorrow. And, Lord, I pray for his family. Mm. I thank you for their sacrifice and letting him be with us even on Valentine's night. Um, Lord, thank you to his wife and his children for giving him up mm-hmm. that he might bless us. I pray a blessing on their home. Mm-hmm. May his children love the God of their father. Yes. And may they mm-hmm. follow in your footsteps. Mm-hmm. Bless his marriage. Mm-hmm. Bless his life. Yes. Pour out your spirit mm-hmm. on Russ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.